Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Dave LeBlanc from the Globe and Mail newspaper. Dave has written weekly as the architurist for the real estate section of the Globe since 2004. He's also served as a past juror and design expert for both the Ontario Association of Architects and Heritage Toronto. In addition to his appreciation of architecture, Dave is a lover of Toronto and a huge advocate for this city. Welcome, Dave, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm where I've been for the past two years, which is the basement of my wife's store, <laughs> uh, which is uh, where we also live. We live above uh, a retail store. Um, Please give a shout out. Well, funnily enough, um, uh, I write about a lot of uh, mid-century modern architecture, and she sells the furniture from that period. So it's called Ethel, 20th Century Living. And it used to be on Queen Street, but now we're on the Danforth, just uh, east of Coxwell. Excellent. And what what part of town do you do you live in? You're you're living in the same property. Yeah, we live above the store, so we're like shopkeepers of uh, you know the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. We um, when we bought the building, we thought it would be easier if we had a one mortgage for the store and, and for our lives, and so that's what we did. So we've been doing that now for three years, and uh, it's actually a really friendly neighborhood, the Danforth, and. Um, we're really happy to be here. In fact, I've never felt so neighborly. Maybe it's because we own a store and people get to get to know us that way. But uh, the amount of people I've met, the amount of people um, that seem to seem to just look out for each other here is, is quite amazing. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised. It's a really strong high street. You know, it's it's got mm-hmm. a really strong retail character. Um, the streets, uh, you know, all kind of feed into the Danforth. So everyone that lives here, shops on the Danforth and it's it's actually you know the way cities used to be designed and, and should still be designed I think. Well I, I think this isn't a new story I'm pleased to hear it's still this way today. When I was growing up I heard amazing stories my late father and his two brothers grew up at Danforth and Broadview it's now the Greenwood Barbecue and just like your situation today I guess it's the reverse of it my dad and his two brothers lived above a 24-hour diner it was called the right spot and he had great stories about living on the Danforth. There used to be cinemas there. The neighborly vibe that you talk about existed then. And uh, it's amazing to hear that today you're enjoying that same kind of lifestyle that my father enjoyed. Well, I, I think that for a time, actually, that lifestyle died out. And, and funnily enough, um, from what I can tell from, from the old timers, it's when the subway got put in. And the subway actually stopped people from walking as far as they used to and doing their shopping on the way home. The subway, you know, the, the Bloor Danforth line, as you probably know, went in, in uh, 66, I believe. Okay. And cause the young line was first and that was 54. But when the Bloor Danforth line went in um, people, you know, they, you know, even if they lived, let's say at, uh, at Broadview and, uh, and then they worked over at Coxwell or the other way around, well, if they took the subway now, uh, they just ignored all of the stops in between, got up, you know, came up from underground and went to work or came home and didn't bother to use the stores along the Danforth. And what I've heard is that that businesses had a very hard time of it for the 60s, 70s and 80s until finally younger families kind of started to come back into this neighborhood and regenerated the neighborhood and said, hey, you know what? There's all these fruit markets here. There's mm-hmm. little shoe stores there are, well, there aren't cinemas anymore, but, but, you know, there's all of these little businesses that we could be walking to, to patronize. And so they started doing that because it was like this old timey thing that, that, you know, they, they rediscovered. And yeah. I, I, I believe the businesses have been doing pretty well for, let's say at least the last 30 years. And I haven't been here that long. So, I mean, we're doing fine. <laughs> well, it's a great point. And I think even during this uh, recent two years that we've been locked down and then forced to kind of emerge slowly it's encouraged people to walk to shop local so it makes sense with what you're saying that well things have turned around again 
Yeah, in fact, I, I have a funny feeling that that people get off a couple subway stops early in order now to walk their neighborhood and do a little bit of shopping on the way home. And I, and I mean pre-pandemic. I think yeah. people move here because they want a high street. And they this is the last one, really. If you go north of here, it's O'Connor. That's not really a high street. And yeah. then you get into the suburban street. So the Danforth is kind of the last old streetcar suburb um, high street that's designed to be walkable. Let's go, Dave, if we may. I like to go all the way back to the beginning. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Oh, well, I was um, born at St. Mike's Hospital. Yes. Um, And then because I had uh, pneumonia and I believe asthma as well, I was immediately rushed to sick kids. Uh Uh-oh. So that would be (laughs) that would be back in 1968. Okay. And uh, for the first a year of my life, I was in sick kids hospital. Um, apparently for quite some time, for a few months at a time, my mother tells me, see, I was too young to remember. Yes. My mother tells me there was a 24 hour nurse because uh, my little lungs would forget to breathe. Oh boy. And they would tickle my feet to get me to breathe. Oh my goodness. And so, um, so I always think of those, those, you know, attractive sixties nurses uh, tickling my feet uh, whenever <laughs> I get sad. Um, but <laughs> But anyway, um, that was the first year of my life. And then I I, uh, was brought home to 64 Newport Avenue, which is near Victoria Park subway station. That was the first house I ever lived in. And then from there, um, actually, I I should have told you this. I I grew up in this neighborhood that we're at again with our store. So I I grew up on a street called Springdale Boulevard, which is about five streets north of the Danforth. Runs between Greenwood and Woodbine. Um, we were a, a seven-person family in a two-bedroom house, hmm. very working class. Yes. Um, my father was a produce manager at Loblaws. My mother was a stay-at-home mother until I got to be about maybe four or five. Then she went to work at East General Hospital uh, as a sort of a ward aide, um, which is now called Michael Guerin Hospital. Yes. So I know this area well because I went to a school called St. Bridget's, which is a Catholic elementary school, which I can walk to today. Okay. Um, and this was back when I was a kid, it was a very Sicilian neighborhood. It was, it was not really on the radar because we had College Street and we had Corso Italia and stuff like that. But, but I'd say from about Woodbine to Monarch Park and from the Danforth down to about Greenwood, it was all Sicilians. And uh, like since I went to a Catholic elementary school, let's say there's a thousand kids there. Well, 900 of them were, were Sicilian or Italian. Then there yeah. was some Irish kids and there was a French Canadian kid like me and a couple of Filipino kids. And that was it. So I grew up thinking I was Italian. <laughs> which is, which is a good thing to think actually. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I, I knew what Nutella was long before my other uh, <laughs> white friends did. Um, that so is... anyway, that's, that's where I grew up. And then we moved uh, just before um, I started grade seven and we moved to uh, the Wexford area of Scarborough. Okay. So I was able to attend Wexford Collegiate, which, even though it didn't have the name back then, what is uh, today called Wexford School of the Arts. Oh. So I went to an art school. So we were doing um, life drawing with, with actual models. We were doing uh, clay, like sculpture. We were firing clay. We were um, doing photography. We had a, a graphic design teacher that actually had, I, I still remember this, he had designed the, um, the Purina Dog Chow logo. And the, so the checkerboard. Yeah. With the dog jumping over. Hmm. And uh, so uh, he taught us like fonts and, uh, and kerning and, and typography and stuff like that. So um, even though I never went into architecture, I, I have an art school kid sort of a background. And I guess I've always looked at architecture from that perspective, like look at it as art, you know? Yes. And, and then and I guess because I, I was so terrible at math, um, and, and I dropped it as soon as I could. I just never even thought to go into architecture because, uh, you know, I'd always heard there was a sort of an engineering and math element to it. And so yes. it, never even, it never even crossed my mind to look at it as a profession. Although I'd been looking at architecture since I was a little kid. Well, certainly you can see you come at it more, as you say, from the arts angle and the arts background. Where did you go to school after Wexford? Okay, so after Wexford, I did uh, radio and television arts at Ryerson. Okay, I dropped out of radio and television arts before I was even done first year because I was sick of school. Wow. But because my folks were paying for school, I thought to myself, oh, I better get a job before I tell them I've dropped out. So I called every radio station in Toronto. And the last one I called had just gone on the air six months before. And they were an easy listening station uh, called Easy 97. 
And then they became, they became easy rock. Uh, And then they, they're now boom. Oh, so anyway, they were a six months on the air, last ditch attempt to put Easy Listening uh, on the air in Toronto because Easy Listening was a format that I would say died out by the early 80s. So this is 1988. I called them. They were the last one I called. I told them I wasn't even finished with first year at Ryerson yet. And somehow they still gave me an interview. <laughs> and so I got a job, um, you know, cl- doing cleanup production and, and doing uh, operating, which is, you know, the guy that sits there with a, a voice track on tape, a stack of commercials in front of him. And he sort of DJs the, the, the radio show to air, but because you're just a kid, you don't get to be the guy that voices the stuff. You have the yeah. real announcer on the reel to reel tape. So and and let's just stop job. there. Reel to reel tape. So this was uh, pre-digital. 1988. Yes. So then after uh, a, a very a notorious and terrible career at, at Easy Rock, which or sorry, Easy 97, um, I managed to somehow get into CFRB 1010 uh, in 89. And okay. then uh, I left radio at the end of 1990 because I was in a band and I tried to be a rock star. Of course, you can see how that went because um, after a series of terrible jobs, including one for Canada Post, which it's not a terrible job. It was just a terrible job for me. Okay. Um, after a series of terrible jobs, I went back to university. I went to York uh, for a, an English degree. Then I didn't finish that either. Uh-oh. But I, I got close. I, I, I think I'm about th- maybe four or five credits away from a, a Bachelor of, of uh, Arts. And uh, then from there, I went back into radio. And, and then I, so I've been back in radio since 1996. Uh, but in order to get back into radio, I moved to Montreal. So I worked at the CFRB, uh, sort of a clone, not a clone, it's, it's the sister station. It's, it's exactly the same format, uh, owned by the same company, and that's CJAD 800. Okay. So I worked there, and then that's actually, ironically enough, if I can get back to architecture, that's Please how do. I got into writing, uh, because uh, when you're working in the English media in Montreal, you get to know, I mean, it's a small community, right, the English media. So any industry event I would attend, I would meet people that worked at the, um, uh, uh, the, the CTV affiliate, or I would meet people from the Montreal Gazette. Mm-hmm. So it was at one of these parties in Montreal that I was um, yammering away to some, some radio colleague about Mies van der Rohe and this building in Montreal called Westmount Square. Mm-hmm. And how in 1997, it was turning 30 years old and how it was unique that it was Mies van der Rohe's only complex that was, um, retail, residential, and commercial. And I was telling him all about and how important Mies van der Rohe was and that he was one of the teachers at the Bauhaus and blah, 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 blah. And this guy from the Montreal Gazette walks over and he says, hmm, you seem to know a lot about uh, Westmount Square. I'm like, oh, yes, I do. It's it's modernist, and I know everything about modernism. I didn't, <laughs> but I pretended that I did. And, uh, and I mean, trust me, I, Mies van der Rohe's name was on my lips when I was eight years old because I used to go and look at TD Center as a kid. Yes. But anyway, um, he said, oh, we have a guest page in architecture at the uh, Montreal Gazette because we don't have an actual official architecture writer at the moment. Would you like to write about this building? I said, why, yes, I would. Do you know how to write a a newspaper article? Why, yes, I do. (laughs) Of course. And at that point, I'd only written for my high school newspaper. Um, So that was my first published piece in a newspaper. Excellent. And uh, what would you have written that on? Do you remember? Was this uh, the early days of word processing software or? No, this now is 1997. So yeah, I guess I had and I had a computer in my in my apartment in Montreal, and I you know, and I and I guess I, I don't remember what the name of it was. It certainly wasn't Microsoft Word, but I had a word <laughs> processor. Yeah, of course I did. Now this 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 podcast is of course called Toronto Legends, and we focus on Toronto. But I'd be remiss, my uh, my lovely and talented wife Vicky from Montreal, Greenfield Park, South Shore. And she always wants me to ask guests such as yourself, where did you live in Montreal and what were your, what were your hangouts that you remembered fondly? Oh, well, hangouts as such were wherever the radio station was paying for drinks. Yep. So that was often on Crescent Street. Yes. Um, Where I lived was, it was interesting because when I got the job, it was a year after the referendum. And uh, and like I said, I was coming back into radio. So um, the people at the Montreal radio station were like, so you're, you're in Toronto and you want to live here in Montreal? <laughs> you were going the opposite direction. 
well, and that's what everybody said. They're like, like, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing's wrong with me. I love Montreal. <laughs> and since I'd been in a band, I, I'd played there a few times. Um, you know, me and my friends would just do a weekend in Montreal once in a while because we liked the, the Frenchness of it. We yeah. liked that it was exotic. We liked that the women looked so much more put together there. Yeah. And, 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 you know, Toronto women look great now, but back then the Montreal women always looked better. Yes. So we, um, I was very familiar with the city and I said, look, I want to get back into radio. I don't care where it is. I had previously interviewed in Tilsonburg and Peterborough. And then I thought to myself, why am I interviewing in those places when the next biggest city over uh, is Montreal? And I love it. So I yeah. said, no, I, I don't mind. And then in, in those days, you could basically pick a street and there was an Alloué sign. And you could pick whatever street you wanted to live on. So I picked something that was within walking distance of the radio station, which was at Fort and St. Catherine at the time. Okay. And I picked something in St. Henry or St. Henri, which is down between St. Antoine and St. Jacques. You kind of go down the hill from the radio station and then you go west. It wasn't far from the Imperial Tobacco uh, plant, which yeah. uh, you could still see from the highway. And I think they turn it into condos now. Uh, as with most things. Yes, but but the Imperial Tobacco plant was always something, if you came in on the 20, you'd always see it because it had a big clock, like a cool modernist clock. I do remember that. Yeah, and so I was down a, a few streets away from there. So some, some mornings you'd wake up and it would smell like freshly um, baked <laughs> tobacco. But, uh, yeah. But it was it was really cool because I was walking to work. My street was called um, Agnes or Rue Agnes. Yes. And, and Agnes Street had a was a U-shaped street with a fountain in the middle in a park. And it was a fountain of Jacques Cartier. And there were like these bowls with water that would fall from small bowl to medium bowl to big bowl. So I would wake up to the sound of burbling water. I would walk to work. Um, it was lovely. It was just a lovely time. It was almost as if like a lot of people, you know, they, they go to um, university in Montreal. It, like yep. I was there for four years, kind of like I was there. I made a bunch of friends that I still have. And uh, it's got a really nice little place in my heart, that city. Well, clearly an idyllic time for you and a great experience. What brought you back to Toronto? Well, um, I was offered a job here in radio. I was I was given an, an, an amount of money enough to actually be able to live here because I told them. <laughs> I said, you know, it costs 40% more uh, to live in, in Toronto than it does. And so they actually brought the pay up to, to be in line with that. Um, and it was back at CFRB where I'd worked. Um, and then that's where I um, met somebody uh, while working at CFRB. I met somebody who his girlfriend, but now his wife, and they have lots of kids now. But I met somebody whose girlfriend was the uh, travel editor at the Globe. And I had written a few pieces for the Gazette by that point. I'd written something for a paper called the Montreal Suburban. Okay. West yeah. Island Suburban, sorry. Um, which was a, a bit of a radical little paper that uh, liked political stories. So I wrote a few things about Toronto versus Montreal architecture, stuff like that. Um, so I had maybe four pieces in my back pocket that I'd ever written for newspapers. Yeah. So I was speaking to her and she's like, oh, well, I know the real estate editor pretty well. And he um, he's kind of looking to retool the section. He wants to make it a little, a little more um, like a little less charts and graphs, a little more human interest and stories that are about the people behind buildings and the stories behind buildings. I said, well, I'm your guy for that. I'm, I'm really good at that. Yes. And I am good at it, but I mean, I, I didn't have any J school experience or uh, a real journalism experience, but I, I did know how to write. So she mentioned my name to him. He actually barked out the orders on the phone uh, to me for my first assignment. It was like Lou Grant barking at me. <laughs> He's like, okay, so you got this building. I, I, I haven't had a writer get into it yet. So I want you to go up there. It's a, it's a farmhouse, but with an urban sort of appeal, I want you to get up there and, and write about that. And then we'll see how you do. And so literally I arranged this thing and the, the poor guy was going through a divorce. So it was hard to, to get him to nail down a time. Um, but I managed to beg, uh, beg my way into that place. I wrote a piece for him. He said, that's pretty good. Uh, he published it. He said, if you want to write something every couple of months, be my guest. So I did that for about a year. And then at that time, I, after about a year, I pitched him a weekly column and he said, yeah, okay. And this is, the Architurist. And that's The Architurist. And, and that actually, that name came from little vignettes I was doing on CFRB uh, that were 90 seconds, but it was the kind of thing, um, I don't know how much you know about radio, but back in the, in the good old days of radio, there were uh, laws that said you had to have, even on music stations, you had to have a bit of spoken word content. 
Okay. They were called the foregrounder laws or something like that. And I remember, so if you listen to air checks from CKFM, I bet you didn't know this was going to be about radio so much, did you? I, I like that we're all covering all the various <laughs> mediums. But is so this like the Canadian content rules? Would you say it's akin to that? I No, I think it was akin to the fact that FM was different than AM and they wanted more spoken word because smart people listen to FM and, and, and dumb rock and roll kids listen to AM. <laughs> okay. And so what it was was, and this, this, this was still there when I first started in radio, um, the, the, like CKFM, let's say, used to have like a guy named Carl Bannis and he would do like love poetry and then he would do um, the sounds of our Toronto. And I remember these from when I was a kid and it'd just be like, he would kind of, there'd be this little guitar music playing in the background and he'd say, if you were at the corner of Young Street and, and uh, uh, you know, Queens Key, look, look, look up, look way up and you will be looking at the longest street in the world. It runs all the way from, you know, blah, 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 to Rainy River. And along the way, you'll find stops such as this. And he would do these little vignettes about the city. Mm. And his voice was way better than mine, by the way. <laughs> um, beautiful, deep, rich FM, you know, evening announcer voice. Um, so I did little things like that at CFRB in the early 2000s into the mid 2000s and i and i called them the architurist and i had my little whiny voice but i'd say hey if you're at the corner of jarvis and so and so look up and you'll see a building that's really interesting because it's got this and this and this and they were 90 seconds long and i really did sound that that bad and um so when i pitched him the newspaper column in 2004 i said well i could call it the architurist and no i would mostly be in toronto but i would kind of that would be the, the spin that I'd be an architurist in my own city and I would look mm-hmm. at things. And of course, cause it was the real estate section. We had to also talk about guys, kitchen renovations and things like that, which isn't really archituring, but, but we managed to squeak in the odd little archituristy thing. And, and it's been kind of a fun thing for me. Well, it's amazing because you're coming on to 20 years of writing this column. Yeah. On, on this podcast, we love to see, as they say, how the sausage gets made. What is the process of writing your weekly column? What's, what's your typical weekly schedule? Well, I do still work full-time in radio. Um, so everything I do for the Globe and Mail, uh, now, and I secretly between you and me and, and everyone listening, I, yes. I do manage we'll to keep to, this to ourselves. I peck out the odd sentence while I'm doing radio commercials that have to do with the column. Hmm. Uh, but I, I mostly it's weeknights and weekends. And I would, uh, thankfully when the time change happens and it's light out till seven, eight o'clock at night, I can go see a house or a building and there's still sunlight coming in at at six o'clock. So, uh, I mean, I will, I will, I I made it a point early on to never write about something I didn't see in person. So, okay. Unless it's something that's just renderings and it's some fantasy plan. I mean, obviously, but, I will not write about a building I haven't walked through because you need to smell it. You need to touch it. You need to see how light hits the surface. You need to touch the handrails. You need to hear how your footfalls sound. Um, So I will go see something usually during the week or maybe on a Saturday morning. Um, Up until recently, uh, when I found this wonderful transcribing software called Otter, um, I used to have to uh, dedicate a couple of nights to to transcribing. Mm. Uh, so I, you know, let's say I'd see a house for, uh, or, or a building for 90 minutes, I'd have to sit back and relive all of that. And I'd have to transcribe out almost everything because you never know when you're in the journey of, of writing the column, you never know what parts you're going to need, right? You don't sure. know your angle when you're starting. So I would have to transcribe pretty much everything. I would, um, so I'd spend a couple of nights after dinner um, with my wife, you know, doing what she's doing. Uh, I would be transcribing in another room. Then usually on Sundays, because she works on the weekends, because she's a retail person. Uh, so on Sundays, I would usually bang out the column. And um, now that I have the transcribing software, it's it's I don't have to spend quite as much time on that part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and since I've been doing it so long, I get uh, just a ton of press releases. I know a lot of architects. So when I'm in a jam, I can... I can call or email somebody and say, Hey, I haven't written about you for a year. You must have something. Um, So I would say in the first couple of years, it was tough because I wasn't in the network of getting press releases. I didn't know every architect in town. So it it was very tough and I'd I'd have to invent stories for myself and then, you know, look up the people and beg them. And, you know, so it was hard, but it got, it got pretty easy pretty quickly because when you say you're from the globe and mail, 
um, people actually pay attention. And, and that's kind of cool. So to generate ideas for your column, it sounds like once you got the ball rolling, it was a little easier. It was. When you, have com- when you completed an article, what happens? You submit it to the Globe and it immediately gets published as is, or is there a process? Do you work collaboratively with people at the Globe? Um, I'd like to say that the, the, the things are vetted to death and they fact check <laughs> everything. But like every other media, they've suffered all sorts of um, cuts. And I can tell you when I first started writing weekly, um, there, was a, there was an editor of the real estate section. There was an assistant editor. There was a photography person. There was, they did layout in-house. All of that's different now. Mm-hmm. So I, yes, I used to have somebody that would, that would write me back with the column highlighting things saying, are you sure? And please recheck this. This number doesn't look right. So I would then have to do some some vetting of my own or he would do some and then I'd send it back. Now, I hate to say it because I I do want people to think the Globe and Mail is reliable and I think Mm -hmm. it is, but pretty much what I write goes to print. So if I screw up, we don't know until someone writes us and says, we need a retraction because that guy got it totally wrong. So I have to be extra careful now because they just don't have the time. And I'm sure with news stories they do, but something like real estate, there's less and less resources available. So I'm kind of out there with my uh, blank in the wind, you know? Well, on that note, although there must might be less uh, review before it gets published, I'd say and suggest today there's much more feedback that you are uh, hearing about. I'm thinking about with the move to digital, whether it's the actual newspaper being online or just the opening of the gates to social media. What is the feedback like for you, Dave, from your readers? Um, it depends on the topic. There, there are still things that generate nothing because they're just a guy's kitchen renovation. Yeah. Unless it's like some, a kitchen that won an award or something, then everyone has to pipe in to say, that thing wasn't deserving of an award. Yes, of um, course. But no, uh, there are still, you know, hot button topics, I guess, that, that get people riled up. Like laneway houses will usually get people stirred up because this is a new typology and people are still a little bit wary of having them all all behind them and spying on them, you know? So yep. you'll get people responding to that. Um, but when I write something like really warm and fuzzy, which I love to do, like I'll take an architect that um, maybe was a big deal in the 50s or 60s and maybe no one know, knows his name anymore. And I say his because most of them were guys, um, you know, and, and I do a biography and I, I uncover some buildings that, that lots of people would know, but you never knew who designed it. And I'll, I'll talk to his daughter and, and, and I'll get a whole sort of family story and, and where they lived, like kind of the things you're asking me. Yeah. And uh, I'll write something like that. And I'll say, man, I'm so happy I learned all that. And what a great, you know, thousand words I put together. And then I'll get crickets and I'll be like, does nobody care about this stuff? But I think it's just because there's not, there's nothing controversial about that. There's nothing to get someone's backup, right? You're just telling someone a lovely story and they go, Oh, well, isn't that, isn't that great that I learned about this person? So, you know, like, like anything, it, it depends on what you write. And, and there have been times where I've received uh, 50, 70 emails and times I've received one, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's strange, but I think real estate, it's not, I mean, yes, everyone, it's on everyone's lips because houses cost so much here, but I'm a columnist. So a lot of what I write is, is, is warm and fuzzy versus controversial. But it's very interesting that telling a full and filled out story does not generate much feedback, but even if they disagree, maybe it uh, generates more, whether they disagree or agree, at least it makes some kind of, uh, generates some kind of opinion among your readers. Do you like that feedback loop? Do you like interacting with your readers? Um, for the most part, yes. Um, I, I've been called a few names before, which is okay. And and when I was early in doing it, because I'm, I wasn't prepared by journalism teachers, I guess I took it really personally. And I'm more of a sensitive artsy kid. So I was like, oh, they don't like me. And, and I, you know, like I got dejected and, and I would think about it for days on end about a comment that somebody may have had for me. But now after this amount of time, eh, whatever, you know, there's you so have much. to develop a thick skin. And, and I did. And um, you know, it's, it's fine now. And uh, I, I'll tell you once I, I, I made a mistake and this is back when uh, we did have people vetting things, but because my, <laughs> the assistant editor wasn't a military guy, well, I was writing about the town of Ajax and Ajax is named after a ship that served in world war two. And um, 
the H H M Her Majesty's ship, H H M C S Canadian ship, yeah, H H M C S Ajax, and right. so I just you know casually referred to it as the, as the battleship, the H M C S Ajax, because I don't know, I'm not a war guy, I'm not a military guy, and but I got a couple of emails like telling me I was pissing on the graves of our veterans because mm-hmm. the Ajax was not a battleship, it was a light cruiser. And the reason it was so important is because it was a light cruiser that defended itself with not as many guns as a battleship against battleships. And holy shit, how did I not know that? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I must be like the worst journalist ever. And I felt terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, I wrote back a few people saying, I, I know I'm not pissing on the graves of our veterans. I, I, I am very thankful for the freedoms I have. I was just naive and I apologize. You know, I, I think if that happened today, I, I might not bother getting into these death spirals with, with people, but yeah. But, but anyway, um, that's an example of, of what can happen. You can get one little word wrong. And if it's, if it's the wrong word uh, with a group of people like that, because there's a lot of military buffs out there. Yeah. So well, I can tell you ever since that happened, boy, am I careful. Yeah. Well, especially in today's world, uh, uh, one thing can set people off, but you obviously had the right attitude. You use it as a learning experience. And you hope the people that got annoyed can treat it as a chance for them to educate you and I about all these different things. That's how we get the history. I want to ask you, Dave, about a number of specific Toronto landmarks that to me define Toronto. So you can make any comment or if you have any interesting background on any of these. So uh, let's ease into this. The, the piece of architecture that Toronto is most famous for the CN Tower. Mm-hmm. Love and it, I, hate it. Love it. Um, when other kids were collecting hockey cards in the 70s, uh, I was sort of uh, like sort of drawing little nicks in the wall as to how tall it was getting. Yes. And I was I was I was following it very closely. Um, in 1975, when it was just being topped off, I would have been uh, seven years old. Uh, 1976, I would have been eight, and I begged my parents to take me on opening day. It was they were the lineups were too huge, but they took me on the second opening day. Okay, so I was there when 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 you were up there, and and all you could see was parking lots as far as the eye could see. Incredible, <laughs> um, and I've loved it ever since. Uh, I still remember when the Pepsi logo went on the. Um, the, the, the white donut part and how upset I was that they had sold out and allowed advertising on it. And then for years later, you could see the stain of the Pepsi logo. Do you remember any of this? Well, I'll tell you what I remember. <laughs> and I'm wondering which came first. There was a big controversy for the launch of Windows 97. They did uh, Start Me Up. And with the uh, tie-in with that and with the Start Me Up Rolling Stone song, they unfurled, I guess it was a huge banner on the CN Tower at that time. Oh, I don't remember that one. So okay. I don't know if this precedes yours, but so you still have that, uh, I guess, a bit of nightmare of seeing the <laughs> the leave behind on the commercialization of the CN Tower. I remember that photo, Dave, that you're talking about where they topped off the tower with that radio antenna. What a dramatic photo that was. Well, I, I again, I was so interested in that building that um, uh, I remember I, ha- I have an older brother who's 13 years older. So if I was eight, he was... Um, uh, what, 20 to 30, right? Nope, uh, 20. Okay. Uh, my math is C. I told you it's terrible. <laughs> it's that math again. <laughs> so, uh, is yeah, so if I'm eight, he's 21. Um, anyway, he took he took us all to Nathan Phillips Square before uh, Olga took that last piece up. They had laid it down on its side in Nathan Phillips Square, and they were allowing people to sign it. Oh, Wow. Yeah, and it's it was a big deal. There was crowds of people, as I remember it. And again, I was pretty small, but but I I, I signed my name on it. Of course, they they painted over all that, but just to know that your signature would be up there, even if it was under a coat of paint, got a lot of people out. So I signed my I signed my name, and I remember drawing a little uh, face of my favorite teddy bear uh, <laughs> uh, on there as well. And uh, and I was super excited because when I saw the helicopter taking that piece up, I knew my name was on there. This is super exciting. Dave, you are up there right now. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I remember CN Tower. My big memory is actually not uh, going up or at the top. It was the video game arcade that they had in the, I don't know if it was in the concourse or something, but I remember going there for the video games, which is a little oh, strange. Yeah, but no, but that, you know, hey, I was a video game kid too, so. <laughs> <laughs> My other favorite building 
The OCAD building, described as a flying table checkerboard box. Anything on that? Yeah, um, I think that building happened at the right time. I, I think um, people were starting to get a little bored of, uh, you know, this, this, this opened in 2004, if memory serves. Okay. Um, I think people were starting to get bored because even though the, the, the condo boom had started, you know, they, none of them were very interesting in the early 2000s. And I think that even though we were experiencing a nice building boom, it was all starting to look kind of the same. Mm-hmm. We can blame that on Architects Alliance, if you like, and, and Peter Clues. Um, I do all the time when people say, why did Toronto condos all look the same? I say, well, it's because one firm designed 80% of them. Okay. Um, but uh, so, so all SOPs building came at the right time when we needed a, a little bit of weird to really um, show people that Toronto still had balls and that yeah. we were still willing to take a chance like we did with City Hall back mm-hmm. in, in the 60s. And um, I thought it was great. Yeah, it's just a big flying box, but the whole Dalmatian uh, checkerboarding thing where you don't know which is a window and which isn't, and those those pipeline pipes, which is what the legs are made of, they're made from pipeline pipes. Uh, the, oh, to wow. Tape, yeah, they, they're, they're, I believe they're they're just powder-coated, not powder-coated, but they're, they're coated with, of course, the fire retardation stuff. Um, but their pipeline pipes, I know that they, they, they came here by truck and I know that they had to make special, um, pieces. So you'd get that tapering to make them look a little bit like pencils or whatever. I, I heard them that described as pencil crayons. Yeah. So they, so, you know, to, to have them multicolored, to have this weird gangly thing sort of walking over top of this old dowdy building, um, that's what an art school should do. And, and I think that it was great. And sometimes it takes a foreigner because Toronto can, and I hate to say this because I'm I have City Hall tattooed on my arm. Like I'm the biggest, I'm the biggest Toronto booster you'll ever meet. Well, that that's that's a new level of boosterism. <laughs> but but I do think that we can we can get a little a little tired sometimes, and and I think that we need sometimes a foreigner to come in and design us a building to shock us out of our doldrums. And I think that Will Alsop did that just as Vilio Ravel did it for us in 1958 when we picked uh, the city hall that, that we have today. Um, and I think we, we should do more international competitions for that reason. I, I was so happy when Mississauga got the, um, what are they called? Absolute, but everyone calls them the Maryland towers. Yeah. I want to ask you about those towers. Well, I, I think they're beautiful. I mean, it does, I look, it does look like a woman's thigh and leg in a tight dress. I mean, so I can understand why they call them Maryland. They're mm-hmm. sexy. They're beautiful. They're eye-catching. And they show, uh, you know, unlike Gary's stuff that can be, like, really kind of crazy, they show, like, a subtle way uh, it, what computers can do for architecture, like the kind of complex things they can work out that it would take humans you know, decades to figure out that they can figure out in a couple hours. That's a great point. It would have been much more difficult in the past. And it's, it really is kind of iconic in, in Mississauga. I think it's fabulous. It really stands out for them. Yeah. And don't, don't you wish those were in downtown Toronto? I do. Absolutely. I like your saying a little bit of weird. That's what we need. <laughs> Dave, what do you think about something very close to my heart and possibly yours? Maple Leaf Gardens. It got converted into a Loblaws. Now, Ryerson did retain an athletic facility, and there's an outstanding rink. I believe it's on the third floor. What do you think about that kind of conversion? Um, well, I think that I, I'd, ra- I, I, I'd, I'd need to see the walls of Maple Leaf Gardens still there in situ where, where they always have been. Mm-hmm. And when you get a, a restoration like that, um, you sometimes add the extra level of detail. Like they they... they put back the original marquee, right? That wasn't. Yes, they did. Um, And yes, we just kind of saved some walls and, but those walls, especially on the inside, they, they tell a story because you can still see um, the staircases like that, where the, the the paint lacks, you know, where they're, um, they, they attached a bunch of chairs up, up as a art installation, which I think is nice. Yes. Um, I would have rather have seen it be converted into something like that was still a, uh, like an arena of sorts. I, I remember talking to an architect and I can't remember which one, but at the time when it was, when it was being discussed as what, what would happen. And he said something, cause I'm not going to take credit for it, but he said, you know, what would be great. How about a permanent home for Cirque du Soleil? Mm. Because we're a big city. We have mm-hmm. tourists all the time. Uh, wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, cause it's already a big empty shell. It's already got seating. Maybe you have to change the seating, but, and I thought, yeah, that would be great. But, but 
you know, damn it, we ended up putting in a, a grocery store because that, <laughs> that's so Toronto of us. But yeah, um, although it is nice, they did manage to put that rink up on an upstairs floor, which to me is a engineering feat. So it's well, nice yeah, that they retain that thought. It's very nice, actually. And, and when I heard that and then I saw uh, I've never been up into the rink, but when I saw photos and it's like the, ce- the ceiling is so much closer, but it's still, yeah. it's still a hockey rink and it's still in Maple Leaf Gardens. And I thought, well, OK, you know what? That kind of saves it for me. Absolutely. And if you play for Ryerson, you can say you played in the, in the same as the Maple Leaf Gardens. That's a, a great thing to be able to do. Let's talk about Commerce Court North. This was built just as the Great Depression hit, but it's a spectacular building that is still actively in use. Do you like Commerce Court North and enjoy going there? I, I can't say that I've been in, in anything other than the lobby, um, yep. which is a really beautiful lobby, mind you. Yes. Um. Yes. I, yes, I love it. Yes, I love. Uh, I'm. I'm. This is. Uh, this was the one that was the tallest building in Canada for a while. It was. A, it, it, isn't that incredible to think? At one time, that was the peak. <laughs> and then this is the one that also has all the little faces, the the watchmen there on the. On yes. The top, which I've always wanted to go up there and kind of get up close to those guys, um, which I have ne- not been able to do. Um, no, of course, I love it because I I I really enjoy that sort of Superman era of art deco and stepped stepped buildings where you still had craftsmen that were carving stone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm more than likely to walk past that building and go admire Commerce Court South. Is it whichever the one I am painted? Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, because I I'm, I've always been attracted to that simple geometry. Um, and uh, I, you know, that one clad in stainless steel and those mm-hmm. big windows at the bottom. And it's on this set on this windswept plaza with the big stairs. And, and, you know, and then I can stand there and look across at Mies van der Rohe's TD center. I mean, I don't know why, but those are the buildings that always got my heart to race. Yes. They got that shiver to go up my spine. And I'm talking again from when I was a little kid. Yep. I had to, I had to come downtown as a little kid every uh, other week to Bay and Bloor to get a, a, an allergy needle. And oftentimes when my dad couldn't drive us, my mom and I would go on the subway because my mom never got her driver's license. So uh, when, I, when I'd be there with my mom, she'd say, well, what do you want to do? And of course, after I wanted to go down into the, the food court and, and, and have my uh, Chinese food for lunch, I'd always say, do you mind if we take the subway down to the financial district? Okay. And I'm a, I'm a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid. And, and I would walk around uh, the financial district and look at the buildings. And those are the buildings, for some reason, I still don't know why, those are the ones that, that cause that shiver up my spine, and they still do. Well, I'll tell you why. They're so, I feel the same way, Dave. They're just so dramatic, and it's so exciting to be in the financial core. And I'm actually going to ask you about something kind of related to architecture, which I think you are going to appreciate as well. There's these incredible statues, and I hope I say his name right, William McElkerin. The most famous is the businessman, kind of these portly business types. And there's one in Commerce Court. There's one at Yorkville. There's one on Wellington. I just love seeing those. And those also scream out to me, financial core and the excitement of Toronto. I know know those uh, sculptures because – working at, at CFRB at Young and St. Clair for so long, there's one on St. Clair uh, just uh, east of Young. Yes. And I remember like stopping uh, often like with a falafel in my hand or whatever and just sort of <laughs> contemplating this guy and looking at that weird blank expression and the little pig eyes. Yep. Thinking about what this what this sculptor must have thought of uh, business people. <laughs> it was certainly a comment on, uh, I suppose it's even applicable today, but I love looking at those too. Yeah, like, I... Toronto has a lot of sculpture that's very interesting. And, and, and one of the guys I, I uh, really like is, is named Sorel Etrog. Okay. And he, uh, now was he Romanian? But anyway, he came over in the 60s and he had a sponsor, thank God, to, to, to get him some studio space. But um, he did that one in front of the Sun Life building. And it's like, like a big sort of a hinge with a wheel. And it's, okay. and it's sitting on a very small, like it's very top heavy. I can only explain this stuff by saying it's 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 always like a biomorphic element with a weird mechanical element combined, like a hinge or a screw or something, and then with something very sinuous and and uh, like like a, like a hard versus soft. It's I, boy, I'm doing it terrible justice, but well, you're you're 
piquing my interest. I am going to have to take a closer look. E, yeah, Etrog, E-T-R-O-G, as Sorel, S-O-R-E-L. But his stuff is all around the city because he lived here. Uh, okay. For, uh, I think he died, let's say, 10 years ago. But, uh, but he lived here and, and worked here for 40 years. And so his stuff is peppered all over. Um, there's even a couple pieces at uh, the Guildwood Inn where they have some sculpture there. Let me give you, Dave, some issues, if I may. Yes. John Tory, he is running for a third term. I appreciate he is only one vote on council, but he sets the tone. Is John Tory good for Toronto architecture? I don't know that he's bad for Toronto architecture, but he's not David Miller, who who was very interested in in, in architecture and in quality architecture. Um, I I only like John Tory in contrast to the guy we had before, right? Okay. I mean, I like John Tory because he's calm. He's a level-headed business guy. He gets things done. He understands that the film, uh, the film thing is so huge here that he should go to LA once in a while and buy them lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I like him for his. Let me just move my dog here. He's on my lap. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I like him for his practicality, his pragmatism. I like him because he, you know, he's one of those guys that, God damn it, if I'm mayor, I'm going to be the mayor, and I'm going to show up at six in the morning, and I'm not going to finish until eleven at night. Yep. I like that about him, but. What's he doing for architecture? I don't know. Like when the whole laneway house thing came about, it was a couple of counselors that had nothing to do with him yep. that, helped, that helped push it through. I think I'm sad that he, when he did get excited about architecture, it was for rail deck park. And yes. he, wanted, he wanted that to be his legacy. And uh, that got quashed. So, and, and I don't know that he fought very hard for it. I mean, I I'm certainly not in the, in the inner workings of city hall. So maybe he did fight very hard for it, but I was so happy when he was championing that and that he was going to make it a, you know, like by gum, this is going to be my thing that I give to Toronto. Uh, It's too bad. It didn't happen. University Avenue. I find that promenade from college South to front underappreciated underutilized. The only thing I see when I go to university Avenue is a trailer from the police. It's full of these barriers just sitting in the way as an obstruction is university Avenue underutilized. Could we make more of this area? Um, it's certainly one of the few streets that, that became a grand or, or was designed as a grand Boulevard like Spadina. Um, yes. And unlike Spadina, it actually has this ceremonial strip down the middle Spadina is just wide, which makes it nice. But um, unlike cities like Paris and, and and Boston and things like that, we don't have a lot of those ceremonial streets. It's really terrible how it just sort of peters out and then has a hard curve on the end of it. Yes. Um, I know that there were plans back in the 30s to, to, to terminate it in, in, in a much better way. But in any case, um, I like the, um, the very 60s um, middle part when I've seen photographs of what it was, um, yep. which was um, okay. Uh, uh, Dunnington grub. Uh, it was Dunnington grub was a, a, a huge um, landscape architecture firm. Um, Sten- Dunnington grub Stenson. Okay. And I've written okay. about university and the, and when those, those islands, cause there are, let me think now there's about 10 or 12 of them. Yep. You know, separate ones, and they all had their own um, paving uh, pattern. They all had uh, the way in which the the, the, the grassy parts and the, the little half walls. If you look at it from overhead, and there are aerial shots from when it was first done, um, they were really quite... Uh, I won't, I won't say psychedelic, but they were <laughs> they were very graphic and sixties and interesting and modernist. Um, and so I always thought if we could just restore those islands back to what they were in the sixties, we'd have something there um, because we've got all that beautiful uh, statuary already. We've got yes. those great war memorials and, but, but the problem is, is no one uses them as they were intended. And yeah. you know how some of them actually sink down a bit and there's a bit of a half wall and you're a bit below street level. Well, that's because they, they wanted people to sit there and eat their lunch. Yeah. But now people just think, well, no, that's just a, there's too many cars and, and it's noisy. And I'm, why would I sit there and eat my lunch when the, the, you know, the front lawn of sick kids hospital is so much nicer. Yes. We so, need to, we need to return this to be a grand boulevard. I like the words you use, a ceremonial street. I'm, I'm yeah. going to suggest the trigger for this, Dave, should be uh, the Leafs, this playoffs. If we can make it happen, we can get university back to being a grand boulevard. 
how does how does the Leafs relate to that? The parade. That's where the parade will go. <laughs> Fifty-five years. We're talking. <laughs> Uh, actually, I think if that were to happen, they would destroy University Avenue and there'd be nothing left but a crater. <laughs> Too many people there. Here's something we always hear. I love Chicago. Toronto needs to be more like Chicago. Toronto needs a waterfront like Chicago. What do you say about that? Oh, now, you, now you've really opened the can of Dave worms that I don't want to, I didn't want you to open. I, uh, I hadn't been to Chicago for uh, my entire life until maybe... 2010 let's say okay and so i'd already been writing the column for five or six years everybody said oh dave you're you you love architecture you have modernist architecture you got to get to chicago my god dave you've not been to chicago what kind of a toronto person are you if you've not been to chicago (laughs) yes i finally went to chicago and i was underwhelmed okay i thought it looked a hell of a lot like toronto i thought that um it was actually a little more spread out and i didn't like um I didn't like how how long it took me to get to certain neighborhoods. It was like 45 minutes to an hour. Like, it's really spread out. Like, this is the Great Plains, you know, <laughs> that Chicago's on. Yeah. Um, the only thing Chicago has on us, and they don't really have it on us, is that everyone says, oh, the rivers, the rivers. You take this river tour of architecture. It's amazing. Yeah. Why doesn't Toronto have that? Well, because our rivers are in ravines. That's why. Yeah. We. Even if we had like river tours, you'd be looking at a lot of trees, guys, because yeah. the Humber River and the Don River are down down below, and there's no buildings against them for us to all um, oogle and ogle, right? Yeah. So, so I always say to them, you can't compare us that way. I mean, they just they just have features we don't have. Their waterfront, yeah, it's it's handled really nicely in some parts. Other parts, not so much. They've got a freeway going along some of it too. Yes. Um, I think that. You know, they matured before we did. But if you think about Chicago in the 30s or 40s, they had 2 million people already and we had 300,000. Toronto grew quickly from the 70s up. So we made a lot of mistakes on our waterfront, like like the condos that uh, the slightly brutalist condos um, that, that block the view and that sort of thing. But I think we're making up for that. In that all of the things we're now doing is like we're making damn sure we don't make those mistakes again. Yeah, we're doing little things like wave deck and little things that that help engage people with the waterfront. Um, Rail deck park would have been great, um, but I think that we're so aware of of messing up our waterfront that that everything we do from about twenty years ago into the future will be will be the right choice. We're going to do do great things. We've got whole swaths of the waterfront we haven't even developed yet, like where, um, you know, Google wanted to do that smart city. Yeah. You know, think of, we still have some, some, some cement silos there that are just sitting there doing nothing. Like there's so much that is still to do to Toronto's waterfront that I think we can have a city as, as great as Chicago. But we just aren't there yet. We've only been a huge metropolis since the 70s, and they've been a huge metropolis since the 20s and 30s. So well, they're well. not comparable, and that's why I keep telling people, it's like you can't compare Chicago and Toronto. If you yeah. want to just compare the buildings, we have buildings by most of the same architects. Mm-hmm. And all we need to do, all we need to do is rebrand our, our our bus tours as architecture tours of Toronto, and then everybody will will breathe a sigh of relief that we're actually thinking about our architecture. Well, one thing that's tied into the potential of our waterfront is the gardener. Should we keep propping it up or should we follow, for example, Boston's example? They had the big dig where they effectively buried this Crosstown Expressway. What's your thoughts on the gardener? Uh, well, I own a vintage convertible, so there's nothing I like more than than having the top down and being on an elevated expressway with the sun in my eyes and looking at downtown and then driving right beside it. Yeah. I love elevated expressways. I don't yes. know why. Um, but I also love that we've taken down some of the parts of it that don't work. I yeah. think we should keep the part that's there. I think that by the time we build out uh, all the condos we're building, you won't even know it's elevated anyway. Yep. <laughs> because there's buildings going right up against it in almost every place. It is amazing. And, and then what we're doing under the garden there with the Bentway and stuff yep. like that, um, give you these unique spaces like um, actually Chicago has 
some stuff under elevated uh, roads where there's all these little businesses selling Mexican food and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're just learning to, to take over those spaces now. So I don't know. Why don't we keep the part that's there? It's really not that much of, a, of an elevated road anymore. I'm with you. I love that drive into downtown. Yeah. You're very tapped into what's coming down the pipeline. So I guess I want to ask you, when you, th- when you look at Toronto architecture that's in process, what are you either looking forward to or alternatively, what are you dreading that's coming down the pipe? <laughs> um, well, I'm looking forward to more interesting uh, towers. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still on the fence about Gary's towers because I thought the first iteration was, was way more interesting than the current iteration. Okay. But I'm, 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 I'll be happy to see them go up. Uh, because I, I'm not a huge Gary fan, but I, I think it's, it's a nice feather in our cap to get the tallest residential building he's ever designed. Mm. Um, I'm not that hopeful on the condo front, really. Uh, I'd like to start to see more things that look like um, 60 Richmond, which is uh, Teeple, which is the one that's, uh, it's sort of white and it's, it's got more opaque, panels and it does glass which is the okay. kind of thing we should be building if you look up 60 um richmond street it's a little co-op housing building it's maybe six stories tall okay. it's near yeah. um church street okay and then teeple did a similar uh, skyscraper um west of that that looks kind of like it it's it's white panels with uh sort of inset windows um all I'm trying to say with all of this gobbledygook is that we need to build more things that look like they belong in Finland because that's the kind of climate we live in. Yes. And we're building too many glass towers that either the glass is going to fail, there's going to be condensation in those things, or the panels are going to be falling off and people are going to have insane um, special assessments where they, it's like, hey, suddenly the condo I, I live in, I, I owe $10,000 because <laughs> yeah. the curtain wall failed. Like I'm a sucker for curtain walls. I love them, but I I think curtain walls belong to an age when energy was cheap, and that's the 50s and 60s. And I think we should be building more things that look like they belong in a wintry climate. So uh, I look forward to architects embracing things other than the the curtain wall. And um, yeah, I don't know what, what do I dread. I don't know. I I dread more suburbia uh, versus more density because we don't have a lot of farmland left yep. and we, we, we need to protect what we've got. And uh, I like density. And I, I think that if you're going to build subway lines all over the place, you got to have the people on top of them. Yep. And, I, and I'm sitting here on the Danforth where it's been a subway since 1966 and it's still two and three story buildings. Yep. So I don't know what's up with that. Like how come no one's been building? Like as soon as they built the, um, the shepherd line, all the condo guys started building condos. I don't know what happened along here. Yeah. So, it's it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> well, it absolutely is. And I think this density versus sprawl debate is ongoing. It's never going to be resolved to anyone's <laughs> satisfaction, but we are going to have to get more dense. People are coming back into the city. Isn't that the case? Uh, I think so. I, I think I think now that COVID is perhaps on its way out, I, I think that I've read a couple of articles and I didn't write them, but a couple of things about people that decided to pack it all up and, and go live in, I don't know, uh, cottage country and they're 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 on their way back now so uh, of course they're on their way back this is where it's at this is definitely where it's at dave on that i want two favorite toronto things from you these are two favorite things to eat or to do places to go i'm going to let you choose one that's more well known but i want one to be a hidden gem okay um I don't know why, but I've always, I've always thought a really, maybe this is why my dates didn't go so well when I was younger. <laughs> I always thought a really neat thing was to go to the exhibition grounds, the CNE grounds when it, when it wasn't the CNE, when it's just the most desolate place in the world and just walk around and look at that amazing mix of buildings that we have there. We've got art deco. We've got art nouveau. We've got modernism. We've got even new buildings like that one right at the Prince's gates there with all the cylinders. I don't remember what it's called. The, I think it's a Zeidler building. You know the okay. one I mean. The one with all the big the big cylinders, big green cylinders there. Uh, well, we got big, also that hotel now is there, which is a well, little strange. I, I, don't, I don't like that hotel. No, but, me neither. <laughs> but uh, so uh, Exhibition Grounds is, is just neat because it's like, 
it's got all these little pathways and it's got sculpture here and there. And it's got like, you know, that beautiful modernist water fountain and it's got all this weird stuff and they're buildings that were just purpose built for like just this, this little fair that happens every year. Um, so I, I've all, I've always liked to walk, uh, CNE grounds. Um, is that the hidden gem or is that the well-known one? I don't That's know. That's going to be well-known because I am with you 100%, whether it's the bull of a clock or the former exhibition stadium, yeah. even as you say, it didn't even have to be during the CNE. I love to go down there. So you and I are on the same page. Now I need a hidden gem. It can be somewhere you like to eat, Dave. Oh, gee, that's a good one. Um, I, I do actually like, um, I, I'm a sucker for, um, you know, small diners. Um, yes. Uh, and I, and I, I was just recently in Michigan where it's easy to find them. And, and even Buffalo has a couple of good ones. And, I'm sorry that Toronto lacks a good Chrome diner, you know, one of those ones that's uh, you know, you can get food all during the day and it's, you know, you can get the open face Turkey sandwich yep, uh, with the gravy on top. Uh, so yep. I do like the George street diner very much, yep. which is, which is uh, George street and uh, b- 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 Richmond. Yes. Cause that's a nice Irish lady that, that took a building and basically brought the insides of a diner inside of it. And, and it, and it looks like it's been there forever, but it, but it hasn't. Um, of course, I like the Patrician Grill. Yes. Um, I, and I don't like it so much for the food. I just <laughs> like it for the ambiance. <laughs> right? It's like, great ambiance. I know what you're talking about. I love a good diner and a, a greasy spoon and bacon and eggs. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we do, ours are more like the, the, the 70s family style restaurants with the, with the booths and stuff. But, but I, gee, I, I sure wish we had more. Well, there's that one on Young Street, too. What's it called? The Coach? The Coach House? Okay. It's it's that right one. out of the seventies as well, but I guess I just like places there that, despite all of our success and all of our renovation craziness in this town, things that still feel a little bit trapped in time, and and I can I can go in there and and just kind of think about what life was like when the CN Tower was going up, you know. <laughs> it was a fabulous time, and I guess it's all uh, hooked in where there are emotions because I'm the same as you. I love those kind of places. Yeah. Dave, what are your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond? What are you working on? Uh, well, uh, I mean, I'm going to keep on keeping on with the column cause it's, it's the, the bright spot of my week every week. Yes. Um, and I, I do have a novel that was published in, in 2019 that, that sold maybe a couple hundred copies, unfortunately. So I'm working on a second one right now that I hope, um, gets picked up by a larger publisher so that it actually gets out there and gets a little promotion to it. What was the name of the 2019 novel and what's the, what's the concept behind the second so the first the, the first one was called Falcone's Tractor. It was a, a story about an, an Italian immigrant family living on Spadina. It's very Toronto-ish. Yes. It's, it's, it's a heavy book, and I'm not a heavy guy. It came to me in a dream, but it was a heavy family drama with, a, with some pretty heavy-duty like scenes in it with some heavy emotion. Um, again, it came to me in a dream, so I said, well, it came to me in a dream. I might as well, might as well write it because I'd never written a book before. Yes. And I got a small publisher to pick it up. They're called Guernica Editions. Okay. Um, so that came out, but again, it's a small publisher. They didn't have a lot of money to put behind it. Um, so now I'm writing something that's actually science fiction. Uh, and it's, and it takes place um, when climate t- change is so bad that everyone's living in, in Northern Ontario. Okay. And we're having to build out the small cities, even the small towns into big cities. Um, so there's a, there's a big Ojibwe uh, part of, of this book that I'm writing. So I'm learning a lot about Ojibwe culture um, because we we have to work hand in hand with uh, with uh, the reservations up there if we want to build. Mm-hmm. It takes place about fifty years from now. There's all kinds of intrigue. There's a scene that happens on the moon. Oh, it's going to be good. I just hope a publisher thinks so. Well, please do keep us lined up with uh, your progress and as that moves forward. And where can we best follow you, Dave? Either what you're up to now or what you're working on. Where can we best follow you and get in contact with you? Well, I guess just through the globe because that's, I guess, my official uh, working guy email, and that is dave.leblanc at globeandmail.ca.com works as well. Um, and, and then that gets redirected to my, my gmarchitourist at gmail.com email. But you don't need to remember that one because I still have a Globe and Mail address. Uh, it used to be that they hosted everything on the Globe site, but then they decided all of us freelancers had to had to get it redirected to our, to our own email, but, but I'm still available at dave.leblanc at globeandmail.ca or.com. 
Excellent. And that's the best way. And if you want to find me on Facebook and look at pictures of my lunch and uh, <laughs> stuff like that, you're welcome to do that too. Well, that is fabulous. Well, I hope we got lots more we could talk about. I, I greatly enjoyed talking to you and maybe we'll talk more when you're, when your book has come out, that would be something good to, to hear. I've got to finish writing it. I'm, I'm around, I'm around 52,000 words and wow. everything I, well, everything I read is that a science fiction book must be a minimum of 80,000 words. So I'm, I'm about two thirds or two, three quarters of the way there. You are making excellent progress. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Dave, Dave LeBlanc, it was excellent having you. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends podcast. And on behalf of Dave LeBlanc, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. listeners i'm christy and i'm melissa and this is buried motives where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers she said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back and that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag yeah that's not even strong enough words this is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works if you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.